Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, hundreds of thousands of people go missing each year in the United States. Most of those people will be found within the first few days, and the majority of missing persons cases do not involve suspicious circumstances. In some instances, a person is recovered, having met a tragic fate. And while the death of a loved one is incomprehensible, it gives some sense of closure. For others whose loved ones remain missing, a heartbreaking truth would be easier than never knowing at all. As years or decades pass without answers, the continual feeling of loss they carry is matched only by the hope they cling to. Now, more than ever, with improvements in policing and forensics, cold cases are being solved and families are getting long-awaited resolution. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead. Welcome to Episode 68 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. life was finally getting back on track after years of hardship and health problems. In January 1986, Wendy had her first child, Cynthia, shortly before her 16th birthday. But the relationship with her daughter's father didn't last. Around a year later, while working at an ice cream parlor in Edmond, Oklahoma, she met a man named Chad No. Wendy and Chad started dating, and Wendy became pregnant. A few weeks before the birth of their son, Jonathan, Chad, and Wendy got married. Unfortunately, just a month after Jonathan was born, Wendy became seriously ill and was hospitalized. She spent months in a coma, and during that time, issues within her marriage had come to the fore. Before she awoke, a divorce was granted. By the time Wendy began to recover, Chad had custody of Jonathan. In an interview with Unsolved Mysteries in 1993, Chad said, Of course, along with the MS, I didn't think she'd be able to help me raise my child, and instead of having two people or two children to deal with, I just decided that it was best if we got a divorce and I help raise the child on my own. As Wendy underwent intensive physiotherapy to regain muscle control, 
she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. MS is an autoimmune condition that attacks the nerve sheaths in the brain and spine. After repeated or serious relapses, it scars the nerves, creating a variety of symptoms. The effects of MS vary from person to person, depending on which nerves have been damaged. Symptoms range from nerve pain, headaches, blindness, mobility issues, to everything in between. Disease-modifying therapy is widely used today, but when Wendy was diagnosed, it was not readily available. Understanding of MS has shifted a lot since the early 90s, too. The advice frequently given to women who had MS by medical professionals at the time was not to have children. However, this is very rarely suggested now. Pregnancy and childbirth is common and straightforward in many women with multiple sclerosis. While Wendy was in the rehabilitation center, she met a man named Leon Camp. Leon was kind and caring and helped Wendy recover. He was a father figure to Cynthia, and in January of 1990, Wendy and Leon got married. Wendy and Cynthia lived with Leon in Oklahoma City, while Jonathan lived in Shamrock, over in Creek County. Wendy's multiple sclerosis continued to cause her problems and she was on medication to help ease her symptoms, but she had difficulty walking and using one of her arms. The right side of her body was partially paralyzed, and she needed to take steroid medication multiple times a day. When she felt well enough, she sought visitation with her son. Chad initially agreed to allow Jonathan to visit Wendy in Oklahoma City on the weekends. Within a few months, Wendy began to have trouble reaching Chad. And when she would travel to Shamrock to collect Jonathan, she often found that no one was home. Wendy's mother, Jackie Taylor, recalled that Chad and his mother kept moving or changing their phone numbers, so it was almost impossible to keep track of them. When Wendy petitioned the court for visitation, Chad and his family filed a complaint against her husband, Leon, accusing him of sexually molesting Jonathan. Leon strongly denied the accusations, and no criminal charges were filed against him, as the claims could not be substantiated. A family court judge ordered that the visitation resume, and Chad was cited for contempt of court. Despite the order, Chad and his family did not arrange any visits between Wendy and her then three-year-old son until May 29, 1992, when Chad called and said that his mother, Beverly No, would make the almost three-hour journey from Shamrock to Oklahoma City to bring her to see Jonathan. Wendy was thrilled with the news, but her husband Leon felt uneasy. He knew that he couldn't go with Wendy, as there was still tension between him and Chad following the false accusations of child abuse. So Leon asked his sister, 23-year-old Lisa Renee Krieger, who went by Renee, to go with Wendy and Cynthia for support. At around 11 a.m., Beverly No arrived in her gray 1983 Audi, and 23-year-old Wendy, her six-year-old daughter Cynthia, and Wendy's sister-in-law, Renee, climbed in. Leon asked Wendy to call him when she arrived, and when she was leaving, she promised she would, and waved as the car pulled away. 
Wendy called Leon around 1.40 p.m. to tell him they'd arrived in Shamrock, and she was calling from a payphone before Chad picked them up to go to his house. The group spent the next three hours together, with Cynthia and Jonathan playing happily, before Wendy called Chad again from a payphone just before 5 p.m. She explained that Chad's mother, Beverly, was eager to leave, and Wendy also mentioned that she had forgotten to bring her next dose of medication with her, so they would have to leave soon. Hours passed and Leon watched out front for Beverly's car to arrive, but it never did. By nightfall, he was increasingly concerned, so he called local police and reported that his wife, stepdaughter, and sister had not come home. With no word from Wendy throughout the night, Leon filed a missing persons report with the Oklahoma City Police Department. Wendy's parents, Jackie and Ed, drove to Bristow Police Station to file another missing persons report closer to where the group were last seen. Local officers contacted Chad No and his mother, Beverly, early that morning. They said they had no idea Wendy, Cynthia, and Renee were missing. Beverly told the police that she had been asked by her son to collect Wendy the previous morning and drove them to Shamrock, where they stopped at a gas station so Wendy could call her husband. Beverly described how Chad arrived soon afterward and took Wendy, Cynthia, and Renee to his house to visit Jonathan. Wendy had asked her to collect them around 4.30 p.m. According to Beverly, she and her mother Ida had left Shamrock with the group around 4.30 the previous evening. After stopping to let Wendy call Leon from a payphone, they began the journey back to Oklahoma City. Ida Pruitt, Chad No's grandmother, said Wendy started arguing and badmouthing Chad. She later added, And all this time, all the way to town, she's just griping and bitching, and that's all she could do. So after they got back in the car and everything, I told them, just take me back home. I said, You gotta put up with this, but I don't. So she brought me back home, and then she went on. Beverly explained that her mother had asked to be taken home. The arguing continued as they drove along Highway 66, and by the time they reached Chandler at 6 p.m., she decided to tell Wendy, Cynthia, and Renee to get out of her car and make their own way back. Chandler is around 45 miles from Oklahoma City. Beverly said she left the group at the Walmart parking lot in Chandler and returned to Cushing to meet Chad at a restaurant at 7 p.m. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, or OSBI, got involved in the inquiry and spoke with those working in the Walmart and shoppers who were in the area. No one remembered seeing Wendy, Cynthia, or Renee. Wendy reportedly stood 5 feet 3 inches tall, weighing around 200 pounds, with brown hair and blue eyes. Wendy was wearing red sweatpants, a red sweater, and white Reebok tennis shoes. She was carrying a black purse that contained her medical cards and checkbook. And she had a distinctive appearance in that she had a pronounced limp and held one arm at chest level at all times. Six-year-old Cynthia was last seen wearing a pink sweatshirt over a blue and black striped polo shirt. She had light blue corduroy pants and Looney Tunes high-top tennis shoes on. She had taken her multicolor backpack with her that had a noticeable green logo on it. She was reported to be three feet tall and weighed around 60 pounds. She had brown hair and brown eyes. 
Renee Krieger had been wearing a white and yellow striped shirt, acid wash jeans, black ankle boots, and yellow earrings. She was carrying a dark blue purse with leather trim and a shoulder strap. Renee was 5 feet 3 inches tall and weighed 130 pounds. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. With no leads by June 4th, almost a week after the group were last seen, the investigators issued an appeal to the public. OSBI spokeswoman Kim Koch told the Oklahoman, Our main concern is that Wendy suffers from MS, and she has been off her medication since last Friday. Her doctor advises us that she is in a life-threatening situation. If she is found, she needs to be rushed to the nearest hospital. Wendy did not have her medication with her, and her condition was so serious that even her six-year-old daughter had learned how to call for help in an emergency. The OSBI was working with Creek County Sheriff's deputies on the case. They began conducting ground and aerial searches across three counties in Oklahoma in a desperate effort to find the group. By June 19th, three weeks after Wendy was last seen alive, her mother, Jackie, feared the worst. Jackie told reporters from the Tulsa World newspaper that her daughter couldn't survive 20 days without her medication. She said, When they tried to wean her off the medication over a period of six months one time, within one week after they stopped the medication, she could not walk and began having seizures. Within five days, Wendy would lose the use of her legs, the ability to speak, and eventually she would slip into a coma. Searches were conducted along highways 33, 99, and 16 in Payne, Lincoln, and Creek counties. The intense heat led to interruptions in aerial searches, but they continued throughout the following weeks. A $5,000 reward was offered by the OSBI for any information about the missing women and child, but no leads emerged. In August, almost three months after the group went missing, Wendy's mother, Jackie, said that she had given up hope that her daughter was alive, but she would not give up searching for her. Jackie stated, We've known from the beginning that they were murdered, but we don't have the proof or evidence to bring this to trial. I'll never give up on this till the case is solved or the day I die. Jackie described how she had suffered a mental breakdown and spent six weeks in a psychiatric unit as a result of her daughter and granddaughter going missing. Jackie felt that her life had become a series of misfortunes since, and she had not been able to return to her job as a librarian at the University of Central Oklahoma since she learned that Wendy was missing. Jackie told the Oklahoman, Our two cars broke down, and it took a week and a half for my husband to fix them so he could go to work. It seems like it's continuous. I feel like I'm on bottom, and I just keep getting knocked down farther. In an effort to process her grief, Jackie's psychiatrist had encouraged her to hold a memorial service for Wendy and Cynthia, which was held in Mesquite, Texas, in the presence of family members. Jackie said, It was just a way of going through the grieving process, some kind of way of putting things in perspective. We have 8 by 10 pictures made of them and had them displayed on an altar. We had our memorial around that altar. I have an uncle who is a minister, and he officiated. Another month passed, and Cynthia didn't begin first grade as she was supposed to. 
Renee's husband and small children were missing her greatly in Oklahoma City, and Jackie felt as though her daughter's former in-laws were doing nothing to assist the investigation. Beverly No put up a wall of silence, but her mother, Ida, was willing to speak to reporters to defend her family. Ida said that Beverly was exhausted, but had offered to collect Wendy because Wendy was insisting on visitation rights. Ida stated, Beverly has had to be the goat that does everything for everybody. She always went and got them and took them back. According to Ida, after Wendy badmouthed her family, Beverly decided not to take it anymore and left them in Chandler. She said they had no idea that they hadn't made their own way back until they were contacted by the police the following morning. We were not close, Ida remarked, but we hate to see anything happen to anyone, no matter who it is. She also spoke about how hard it had been for her family to be accused of doing something wrong and insisted they hadn't and that they had cooperated with the police. Ida said, we gave them permission to search the house and they took a bunch of papers and stuff and haven't returned them. OSBI agents decided to ask the national television show Unsolved Mysteries for help, and in 1993, an episode about the case was broadcast. In April of 1993, producers from NBC's Unsolved Mysteries traveled to Oklahoma to interview those involved in the case. At the same time, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children issued information about Cynthia Brito to over 5 million gas customers across Oklahoma. By the first anniversary of the disappearance, on May 29, 1993, Jackie Taylor was overcome with grief. She told the Oklahoman, If any emotion penetrates through, it shatters me. The pain just rolls over me. I cannot deal with it and cope with it, so I have to keep everything at a distance and stay as tough as I can. Despite numerous appeals, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation had not found any promising leads. OSBI spokesperson said, We're still actively working it, but I think the agent feels that if we could find the bodies, that's the big question at this point. The agents did have some hope that Cynthia was alive, though as a family friend had reported a possible sighting of the little girl in the passenger seat of a van in northwest Oklahoma City three months after the disappearance. This was too much for Jackie Taylor to believe, and she said she just wanted to find their bodies and lay them to rest. She told the paper, It's hard going through the grieving process if you don't have any closure on it. We did have the memorial service, but that's still not the same thing. I want to lay them to rest so I can be at rest. I will never get over this. This is something that's going to be with me the rest of my life. But at least it would help me make the next step to where I can begin to try and live normally again. In the Unsolved Mysteries episode that aired in October of that year, Chad No and his grandmother Ida adamantly denied playing any part in the disappearances of Wendy, Cynthia, and Renee. Ida said, Beverly and I did not have nothing to do with their disappearances, and I know this. Chad also addressed claims that he had boasted about killing the group before. 
Maybe, in one of my drunken stupors, I might have popped off. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did it. But there ain't no way I could have done something like that. I'm not a violent person. Wendy's mother, Jackie, made her suspicions clear. She voiced her opinion that she believed her daughter, granddaughter, and Renee Krieger were all murdered that Friday night and that Beverly, Ida, and Chad were involved. She said, I feel that they pretty well had their plans laid out on what they were going to do when they made the phone call to ask Wendy if she wanted to see Jonathan. And after whoever got in that car, they were going to do what they had planned to do. An OSBI spokesperson said at the time they were hoping that someone watching the episode would come forward with information. We have a concern that they are dead. Wendy Camp has MS and did not have enough medication to last. Lead investigator Jackie Johnson also appeared on the episode and went to the Unsolved Mystery Studio to monitor any calls that came in as a result. The case was at a standstill. In 1997, the OSBI released a computerized image to show how Cynthia may look as an 11-year-old, but no leads followed. On the 10th, 15th, and 20th anniversary of the disappearance, the families of Wendy, Cynthia, and Renee made public appeals for information, but the case was cold. Renewed rewards were offered to encourage people to come forward. In 2011, Renee's sister, Manel Morris, described how she had experienced recurring dreams about finding the missing trio. Manel said that Renee had been troubled and had drug issues before she went missing. She felt as though her dreams were trying to tell her something. Beverly No continued to deny any involvement and refused to speak with reporters. In 2007, Beverly and her mother, Ida Pruitt, were charged with arson and insurance fraud and received felony convictions after intentionally setting a fire at their home in order to receive a payout of over $83,000. This was not the first time members of the Pruitt family came on the wrong side of the law or under a cloud of suspicion. In June 1980, 64-year-old John Elmer Rousen was found dead in his garage. He had been shot twice and stabbed over 10 times, as well as having his throat slit. Evidently, he had been attacked as he prepared to leave for work, but it didn't seem like a robbery as money had been found in his wallet. His body was found by a neighbor who had been called to the house by Rousen's wife, Deborah, who was in her late 20s. Deborah had called to say she was unwell, and following the discovery of her husband's body, she was taken to the hospital and was unable to speak with investigators. Deborah Rousen was Beverly No's sister, Ida Pruitt's daughter, and Chad No's maternal aunt. No suspects were identified for almost three years until May 1983, when Deborah and Ida were arrested by OSBI agents and Creek County deputies and charged with first degree murder. The investigation had spanned that length of time, and following a tip from someone who said Ida had confessed to killing Mr. Rousen, the pair were brought before the courts. The charges were ultimately dropped, but Ida, who had several aliases, was reported to file numerous civil and insurance claims over the years until she was caught making a fraudulent claim in 2006. 
Investigators always suspected Ida and Beverly knew more than they admitted to. In June 1992, a few days after Wendy, Cynthia, and Renee were reported missing, Beverly Knows' ex-sister-in-law, Coyla Parks, told OSBI investigators that Beverly had told her she would kill Wendy if they lost custody of Jonathan. She also explained that her brother, Beverly's ex-husband, and Chad's father had said that Beverly had kept a 357 revolver in her purse during child custody proceedings. No one else came forward with information. Ida Pruitt died of cancer in 2011, age 82. Two years later, a case review began. As part of the reinvestigation, Creek County District Attorney's investigators Andy Howard and Frank Smith interviewed Ida's son, Grover Pruitt, in March 2013. Grover said that in 1992, he owned 40 acres of land in Pawnee County, and his mother, Ida, had purchased five acres of that land and moved a trailer house onto her portion. Around that time, Ida asked Grover to hire a backhoe operator to dig a hole behind her trailer to install a septic tank. He said that the hole had remained empty for some time until after Wendy, Cynthia, and Renee went missing. At that time, Ida called Grover and told him to call the operator to come over and fill the hole. When he asked why, she allegedly responded by saying, because there's a couple of dead bodies in there. Grover told the investigators that he never looked into the hole because he was scared of what he might see. He said that while he wasn't entirely sure if he was a betting man, he would bet that the girls' bodies were in that hole. He showed investigators to the site and told them that Ida had never moved into the trailer and later sold the property. He also turned over a sawn-off 12-gauge shotgun, which belonged to the family and had been dubbed Baby. Less than a week after his first interview, Grover was interviewed again by the investigators and Special Agent Marty Wilson at the beginning of April 2013. He said that he had distanced himself from his mother Ida and his sisters Beverly and Deborah years earlier. He didn't mention that Deborah had worked for him and lived on his property too back in 1992. Before the interview ended, he took hold of investigator Frank Smith's hand and gripped it tightly before saying, I'm serious. You need to look in that hole. A couple of days later, investigators spoke to Chad No's father, Gary, who was estranged from Beverly. Gary No described how Beverly was desperate to get custody of Jonathan herself, and she eventually did end up raising him. At the time of the custody battle, Beverly allegedly told Gary that it, quote, wouldn't be a problem if that little bitch wasn't involved. An apparent reference to Jonathan's mother, Wendy. In the period prior to the reinvestigation, Gary and Beverly had spoken, and Beverly said that she had been to church and had been saved. Gary told her it wasn't possible to be saved unless she confessed all of her sins, to which Beverly replied that she had confessed all of her sins except one, and she would take that one to her grave. On April 15, 2013, investigators visited the area Ida's son Grover had indicated was the burial site. The current landowners consented to have the area excavated, and three skeletonized sets of human remains were discovered under approximately six feet of soil. It was clear that two of the remains belonged to adults, 
while the third was that of a small child. The bodies were still dressed. One was wearing a red sweater and sweatpants. The other adult was wearing a yellow and white striped t-shirt and jeans. And the smallest was wearing a blue and black striped polo, blue pants, and Looney Tune tennis shoes. Beside the remains, investigators found a litany of personal belongings, including Wendy Camp's medical card, a backpack with Cynthia's name written on the inside, a Ruger 357 revolver, and two knives. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Have it to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As autopsies got underway and before the media got wind of the discovery, investigators decided to utilize Grover's willingness to cooperate. During an interview on April 22, 2013, Grover told the investigators that he recalled Ida phoning him to tell him to sprinkle black pepper around the area where the hole had been filled, and when asked why, she told him it was to deter dog scents. He said that he had not done it right away, but he did so a few months later. Two days after the interview, Grover met with the DA investigators at a location in Bristow, Oklahoma, close to where his family lived. It had been decided that Grover would go undercover and engage his sister Beverly in conversation about Wendy, Cynthia, and Renee. A device was placed in Grover's pocket. The wires were securely taped to his abdomen and chest to allow the device to record and transmit audio. The wires and devices were hidden beneath his clothes before he drove to Beverly's residence in his own vehicle, followed closely by investigators. They could hear Grover and Beverly talking about their late mother, Ida, and how she liked to boast, and Beverly said, I told her before, more than one time, Loose lips sink ships, mama, shut your damn mouth. Grover told Beverly that police had seized his guns, and Beverly responded, I don't know why they'd want the guns when she threw them all in there. 
As they were speaking, Grover kept interrupting Beverly and saying he didn't know anything, which the investigators believed was effectively preventing her from incriminating herself. Two days later, Grover was wired once again and asked to engage his sisters Beverly and Deborah in conversation about not only Wendy, Cynthia, and Renee's murders, but the murder of Deborah's husband, John Rosin, in 1980. To avoid undermining the investigation, Grover was warned not to interrupt his sisters, and he was told not to deny involvement or tell them that he did not have any involvement. After ensuring the wires were securely taped to his chest, the investigators followed Grover to Deborah's house and listened as they spoke. Grover said, Where's Beverly? I saw a whole bunch of OSBI cop cars sitting out in front of her house. Deborah called Beverly, and as she was on the phone, investigators could hear the sound of the tape on the wires being pulled and the microphone scraping against Grover's shirt. As Grover tells Deborah that the OSBI had been to his house and seized his guns, he could be heard interfering with the microphone. He told Deborah that the OSBI had brought up John, and she loudly replied that he didn't know any more about it than she did. He said he told them he didn't know a damn thing, and Deborah stated, Don't you think if we'd known something, they would have arrested us a hell of a long time ago? Deborah and Grover then drove to Beverly's house together. After speaking to Beverly for a few minutes, Grover left, and as he did, Beverly told him he's got his tail hanging out. Once he was in his vehicle, Grover could be heard saying, Son of a bitch, I've got wires hanging out. Grover denied intentionally sabotaging the undercover operation. In May of 2013, Grover Pruitt was arrested and charged with being an accessory after the fact of first-degree murder. Prosecutors argued that he had concealed evidence and helped his mother and others avoid being caught. The OSBI offered a reward of up to $5,000 for information that would lead to the conviction of anyone involved in the murders. They also released a graphic photo of the skeletonized remains in the hopes that it would prompt someone to come forward. After a press conference announcing the discovery of the bodies in Grover's arrest, Beverly No said, I'm shocked they found him. I mean, it's been 20-something years. They say I'm the last to see him, but I honest to God dropped him off. That's why I'm not guilty of anything. I never hurt nobody. I took him to the Walmart. I'll say that to my dying days. There is no way I killed nobody. I don't know how I can get everyone to understand I'm not guilty of anything. Speaking with the Associated Press, Beverly No said that she had no idea how Wendy, Cynthia, and Renee got to her mother and brother's property after she dropped them off at the Walmart parking lot in Chandler. Speaking about how her brother had implicated her involvement, Beverly stated, There ain't no way he should have dragged me in. I think it's to save his skin. She also addressed the 2007 conviction she and her mother had for fraud and arson and explained that while she could have contested the charges, she said, quote, I went for my stupid mother. Jonathan No, Wendy's son, who was by this time 25 years old, said that he was trying not to focus on the revelation. He had spent most of his life in Beverly's care and could not believe that she, or his great-grandmother, or his father, had any involvement in the deaths. Investigators voiced their opinion that they were confident the remains were that of the missing women and child, 
but they were waiting on DNA testing to confirm their identities. The postmortem examinations were completed over a number of months with the assistance of a forensic anthropologist. 23-year-old Renee Krieger was positively identified through DNA analysis. It was believed that she was killed by gunshot wounds to the torso, but her left wrist was also broken from an unknown cause. There was also a linear defect by the collar of her t-shirt, indicative of a stab wound to the neck area. 23-year-old Wendy Camp was positively identified through DNA analysis. Her cause of death was listed as multiple stab wounds as well as gunshot wounds. There was also evidence of defensive injuries. According to the autopsy report, her clothing indicated she had sustained at least 26 injuries, including at least 12 stab wounds and several gunshot wounds. Six-year-old Cynthia Brito was also identified using DNA analysis. Her post-mortem identified no specific physical trauma, but she was found with tape bound around her wrists and covering her whole face. It was likely that she had suffocated as a result. At a hearing in May of 2013, Grover Pruitt pleaded not guilty to being an accessory after the fact to first-degree murder in the homicides of Wendy Camp, Cynthia Brito, and Renee Krieger. Grover was held on a $500,000 bond. His attorney, Mike Jones, told the Associated Press that he had known the Pruitt family for some time, said that he had confidence in the jurors of Creek County that Grover would get a fair trial. He also said that Grover had only been charged to force his family members to talk. He stated, I believe the affidavit on its face contains no sufficient grounds to believe he committed a crime. He was, in fact, arrested in an effort to get him and others to disclose additional information. There are people out there who were responsible for the disappearance and the deaths, culpable people. Grover's lawyer also denied that he had intentionally disrupted the undercover operation and that he had tried to assist the investigators. Beverly No said that she did not believe Grover had any involvement in the murders. She told the Associated Press, I sure don't understand why he ain't out. He had nothing to do with it. He's not that way. While on remand, Grover gave a sworn statement in July of 2013. He said that at the end of April, he had met Beverly at a casino in Bristow, and she had asked him about the shotgun, known to those in the family as Baby. Grover informed her that it had been seized by the OSBI, and Beverly said that she was unsure whether the shotgun had been used or not, but she thought it had been used one time. Grover said that the OSBI had also looked for his 357 caliber revolver, and Beverly told him, you don't have to worry about the 357 because I used Eddie Bishop's 357 and they cannot tie it to me. Grover wrote in his statement that he was certain Beverly had told him she had used the 357. And while she wasn't specific about when, he got the impression that she was referring to the murders of Wendy, Cynthia, and Renee. Wendy's husband, Leon, spoke to the media in the wake of the discovery and told of his struggles over the previous 21 years. He said that the disappearances of Wendy and Cynthia made him question his faith, and he moved around, 
staying with different relatives and throwing himself into work to try and forget. By 2013, he had regained his faith and was living with his sister, Manel, and her husband in Kansas. Manel had been vocal about the search for Renee Krieger before and after their remains were found. She said, I know they're not hurting and they're safe now. It's still bothersome and it's still very hard to understand why. In January 2014, the medical examiner's office announced that the victims had been positively identified through DNA analysis and released the causes of death. Two months later, over a year after the remains were discovered, there was finally another arrest in the case. During a traffic stop in late March 2014, Beverly Noe was arrested and charged with three counts of first-degree murder. OSBI spokesperson Jessica Brown said, Beverly Noe always claimed she left the three at Walmart. There is zero evidence of that ever happening. Investigators believed that Beverly's motive was to simply retain custody of Jonathan and that she acted in concert with her mother, Ida, to kill Wendy, Cynthia, and Renee. The OSBI stated, We hope this brings some solace even though it's been 20 years later. We were always on this case. In the past year, investigators collected information pointing to Beverly No and her mother, Ida Pruitt, as having killed the three. Wendy's sister, Aisha Hashimi, was not satisfied with how long it took for Beverly to be charged. She said, This should have been done the day they found them. There was no reason to wait. The wheels of justice are finally starting to turn. In response to his grandmother's charges, Jonathan No, Wendy's son, stated, It's a lot to make sense of at the moment. There's just a lot going through my mind at the moment. In May 2014, the legal proceedings for Grover and Beverly were moved from Bristow to Selpulpa. Beverly pleaded not guilty to three counts of first-degree murder a month earlier, and at a hearing in July, it was decided there was enough evidence to send her for a jury trial. Grover testified at the hearing and said that he thought his sister would come clean after his arrest, but she didn't. Chad No, Wendy's ex-husband and Beverly's son, voiced his belief that his mother and grandmother had planned Wendy's murder. He said that Ida had told him to arrange a visit from Wendy and told him they would take care of everything else. He explained that he thought she meant transporting Wendy back to Oklahoma City, but realized now she meant they would kill her. Chad called his grandmother evil and told the court she'd stab you in the heart and watch you bleed to death. According to DA investigator Andrew Howard, Beverly No had changed her account for the first time in 20 years, a day after her arrest. She claimed that her mother had agreed to drive the trio back to Oklahoma City for her. Beverly asked why Cynthia was killed, and Beverly had said that Ida called the little girl damaged goods and asked what else they were going to do with her. Grover was promised leniency for his cooperation, and Beverly was set for trial early the following year. In January of 2015, one month before the trial was due to start, Beverly No was offered a plea deal. She accepted and pleaded no contest to reduce charges of being an accessory to first-degree murder in the deaths of Wendy, Cynthia, and Renee. 
Prosecutor Max Cook said that the length of time that had passed since the homicides, as well as the star witness being seriously ill in hospital, meant that the plea deal was the best option. He stated, We have the issue of the age of the case. It's 23 years old, approximately, and evidence becomes unavailable. Witnesses become unavailable. One of our witnesses has been in a coma recently. The victim's families had agreed to the plea offering, and although questions remained, they were happy with some semblance of justice in the case. Leon Camp said, I am thankful this is coming to an end. That's all I can say. It's been a long time. Wendy's sister spoke with the press after the plea deal. This is a good deal. You know, we're, we're able to put that, you know, she's said no contest, that, you know, basically she's saying, yeah, I did it. And that's all we've ever wanted was for her to take personal accountability. And she has, in my opinion, that's basically saying, yes, I did it. And she's going to get her time in prison. Manel Morris also spoke. Showed no remorse. It did bother me. And I know it bothered everyone else also in our family. Because if you, and she knows she's guilty. And if you've done anything like that, you've got to have some kind of feelings if she doesn't have any, unless she doesn't have any. Beverly No was sentenced to 15 years in prison and 15 years on probation. As she was led from the court, she held her shackled hand in front of her face and yelled at reporters to get away from her. Prosecutor Cook said they believed Beverly had killed the trio by herself, stating, Were there other people involved? We feel definitely there were. That she was not the only one. She did not act alone. Her mother, Ida Pruitt, was a suspect. Pruitt died a couple of years ago. In October 2015, the accessory to murder charges against Grover Pruitt were dropped as the statute of limitations had elapsed. The victims were finally laid to rest in August 2016. According to the obituaries, Renee Krieger was a housewife who loved spending time with her son and daughter and writing letters to her husband who was incarcerated at the time of her death. She was the much-loved youngest sibling of her family and left behind her husband Mike, son Taylor, daughter Lisa, and two grandsons. Wendy was a housewife who enjoyed fishing, camping, attending church, and spending time with her family. Her obituary described how she was Leon's soulmate. Cynthia was said to have been a bright little girl who loved school, her toys, and spending time with her grandparents. She loved her stepfather, Leon, and called him Daddy. They were buried in white caskets at a private service in Guthrie. Unfortunately, Jonathan No did not reunite with his maternal family and remained certain that his grandmother was innocent. Grover Pruitt died in 2017, and three years later, after serving less than five years in prison, Beverly No was granted parole. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction 
by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.